Hello and welcome to The Age Stage, a program that looks at issues and matters affecting older Australians, made possible by Aftercare Australasia. I'm Paula Dunn and joining me today is Brendan Telfer. Welcome, Brendan. Well, thank you very much indeed, Paula. Yes, great to be back here. Steve, not in the studio with you today. But uh, yeah, you've got a real great lineup as well today because on the program today, we're going to be speaking to Leanne Bowes, who's the president of the Australian College of Nurse Practitioners, and they've got a lot to say about the upcoming Royal Commission. And also Giselle Ciano, I'm interested in speaking to mm. Giselle because um, she's talking about the concept and the importance of food for brain health and the prevention of dementia. And, of course, another extraordinary story with Professor Joan Ozane-Smith, who's mm-hmm. from the Department of Forensic Medicine, on the horrendous number of accidents involving mobility scooters. Yes, it's quite... Quite amazing, that story. Great to have you company. This is The Age Stage. But first, our regular visitor, Warren Haynes from Aftercare Australasia. Welcome, Warren. G'day, Paula. G'day, Brendan. Hey, Warren. Yeah, good. I haven't uh, sat down, haven't been in the hot seat with you so far, so lovely to catch up. And Aftercare Australasia, thank you very much indeed for your support of the radio station and also uh, your contribution as well. I mean, it's a very, very interesting sector. And there's a lot going on in the sector at the moment as well as I mm. probably don't need to tell you, Mr. Yes, Hayes. That yes. would be an understatement. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so how are you viewing things as far as what's been we've been talking about the last couple of weeks with the yeah. Royal Commission and Okay. Well yeah, look obviously uh, things are starting to move along with regards to, you know, getting this Royal Commission underway. Um, they've uh, they announced the uh, submissions for the terms of the Royal Commission and that's now closed. So uh, we're waiting to see what what the actual terms are going to be. Uh, the the Minister has given some indications broadly as to what they're expecting the Royal Commission to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, so apart from just generally looking at quality of care, uh, they're looking at uh, the uh, placement of... There's, there's been a long-standing issue with younger people with disabilities ending up in residential aged care because mm. there's literally there's nowhere, nowhere else. Nowhere for them else. To go. Yep. Yep. So mm. and and as you would imagine, that's not a terribly suitable environment because this might be people that are in their thirties and forties. Yes. Uh, you know, living with people who are in their seventies and eighties yeah. and who've perhaps you know at a totally different stage of their their life. Yeah. Uh, they're also uh, looking at um, support for people with dementia. And uh, you may recall that uh, a number of the uh, residents that were being sub- subjected to that awful treatment yes, in that yes. footage um, had yeah. dementia. Yeah, they did. Uh, and it means it often leaves those people as being unable to speak up for themselves very well when they're not being well treated. Yes. Uh, they're looking at um, sort of future issues around sort of Australia's ageing population. Um, and specifically how the needs of older people in remote and rural areas are going to yeah, be Yeah, and I don't think that's an area that we really understand very well. I mean, we're ageing at such a rate and we're all being kept alive by so many different things. Um, but I don't think we're, you know, we're look, looking far enough ahead as to how that's, what that's going to look like. Yeah, there, you know? there are major workforce issues for rural uh, remote communities. I think that's the, mm-hmm. the single biggest uh, issue because mm. people generally, as we've talked about, in, you know, with our experience in in home care, 
people want to stay where they in the communities that they've grown up in and keep seeing their friends and yeah, and, and they're the services you offer, isn't yeah. it? In aftercare. Well, yeah. and, and that's very interesting, Warren. So, can I just sort of interrupt your train of thought there for a moment? So just having a look at some of the terms and conditions that the Royal Commission will be using. Are you happy with the scope of the Royal Commission? Because sometimes people can adjust the scope to maybe yeah. get an outcome that they want. Yeah. If you look at that. Are you satisfied that it's going to deliver the types of answers that we require in the sector? Look, I think it's a good start, um, but it's really a bit of, you know, watch this space, to be honest with you, Brendan. Uh, As you say, the the proof of this is going to be in the actual final terms of what's what's announced, and Mm. that hasn't been announced yet. So this is very broad brush. Um, A a point that I've made a few times now is uh, this Royal Commission's coming off the back of I think it's 11 separate inquiries into aged care over the That's last eight or nine years. Isn't it? And from what I understand, virtually none of the recommendations of any of those inquiries have actually been implemented. So if, it's, if it turns out to be just another, you know, souped up inquiry mm. where there's very little commitment to actually change anything, mm. Mm. Uh, I, I think that it's really just going to be a waste of time and money, quite so frankly. So you then, as, as an operator in the sector, Aftercare Australasia, I mean, basically you're a service provider in this field. Do you have any sense of trepidation about where this is going and what it means for your business model? Or you are obviously so satisfied with what you are doing in the sector anyway. Mm. But but what are you feeling in terms of your business model? Does it threaten it? Does it uh, raise alarm bells? Look, I'd have to say quite the opposite. I think for us, uh, for companies like ours, and, and, you know, we're not the only people that are in this space, but for companies like, uh, like Aftercare, uh, what we see is this is a way of really pressuring other organisations that just have been getting away with not doing their job properly. Mm-hmm. It's forcing them to lift their game or, quite frankly, get out, of the, get out of the industry. So what motivates you guys? What is the difference between you and the other operators, some of whom we might have seen in some of the media recently in terms of their treatment? What, what sets you apart? Why do you feel so confident uh, about your position? Well, I think there are two big differences. One is, uh, as, as we've emphasised, we, we, we do the in-home support. And unlike a lot of these companies, that's all we do. We just specialise in that area of the market. And the reason we do that is because that's what we're passionate about. We're passionate about people and we're passionate about supporting them in their home. And you can't get away with that sort of shonky service if that if you're actually working in someone's home, if you're not doing the job right, they just simply give you your yes. marching orders and say, go away, don't come back, we'll find someone that does care and that is going to do the job that we mm. want. That's one of so the So you're accountable. Absolutely. Straight up, you're accountable. And yeah. this is something we actually talk to our carers about when we recruit them. We yeah. say to them, every time you turn up to visit a new client in their home, it's like a mini job interview all over again. Mm. Because if they turn around and say look, you're great, you're fine, but you're not quite what I'm looking for, Yeah, that's it for you. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. We have to find somebody else to mm. do that work. So mm. that really um, holds people up to the mark on yeah, a constant basis. Yeah, that's an interesting basis. point because, you know, if you take go back to a nursing home, you know, you can have so many different people coming and going into the room of one person mm. that they hardly even get to know at all yet someone coming from like an organization like yours into their own home 
they they can establish a, a real bond, a rapport, and, and yes. even look forward to the visits that they get from these yeah. people. And, and the person surely is empowered in their own place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're in their own presence. And yeah. I mean, that surely is a big difference to somebody that's institutionalised, yes. sitting in a small room, yep. staring at a TV and yep. a brick wall. And the door shut. Even in the best of residential facilities, and some of them do genuinely, you know, do a, a, quite a good job. But even in the best of them, you don't have any choice about who provides you with your support. Yeah. You know, the, the people that are rostered on for that shift are the people that are rostered on for that shift. Yeah. Take it or leave it. Mm. Whereas uh, in, in home care, certainly with, and this is something to look for for people when they're considering home care providers, ask them, how much choice do I have about who comes into my home? Yes. What do you do if I'm not feeling as though the, the person's giving me the support that I'm looking for? And if those organisations don't have a clear process around that and aren't upfront with you about saying, well, you know, you have the choice and mm. we have a feedback process and we have a process of following that up with our uh, carers to make sure that they're meeting your needs. If they can't answer those questions confidently, I wouldn't touch them with a 10-foot pole. I'd mm. be going on, I'd be picking up the phone and ringing the next, next crowd on the list mm. to, 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 till you get the answer that you want because you do get some, even some home care providers, they literally will, they'll do one of two things, which is, in my opinion, poor quality service. They'll either just send you anybody they can find and so you're literally getting a different person every time, mm. which mm -hmm. might mean you're seeing... You might have a cast of, you know, 15 or 20 people mm. marching through your home over a month and, and half of them you've never met before in your life. Mm. That's one thing that's to me, is a clear indication of a poorly run service, even mm -hmm. for home care. Uh, and the other one would be when you have no choice and where you've got uh, the organisation, and we hear this from people that come to our company and say, you know, we want to swap, uh, they'll often say, well, one of the things I can't stand about it is they keep sending me someone and I've said to them, I don't like that person, you know, mm. they, they, they're too loud or they, they, I've, tried, I've explained to them 10 different times, mm. you know, how I want something done and they won't listen mm. and they just keep sending them. And when I complain about it, they just say, well, it pretty much it's that or it's nothing. Mm. Um, and that's not how we operate at all. So you must have a very rigorous, at aftercare, uh, you must have a very rigorous method of appraising your staff that do go out and make these house calls then. How do you go about making that assessment? Yeah, look, I, th I think it's, a, again, it's a number of different ways. One of the things I've, I've already talked about uh, in some detail is that we've got a particularly rigorous recruitment service. And again, I would conscious, so, so I think I explained to you, Paula, yes, you did. Um, yep. that, you know, people get interviewed at least three times before yeah. we even make a decision as to whether we're going to offer them a position. Uh, so it's it's quite uh, it's so quite that, arduous. So it in should some be ways. though. It should be like but, that. But what sets you apart then, Warren? I mean, why do some other operators manage just to sort of basically fill a rostering need and send somebody out? I mean, scrutiny. I would imagine. Yeah. Look, it's, so this is the other part of it. Is it's all about personal relationships, Brendan. You know, uh, we've got we don't run a huge call centre, which a lot of these bigger companies. That's what you get. You know, you, you might be calling for Victoria and speaking to someone who's in uh, New South Wales or Western Australia that doesn't even know what suburb you are other than that they look it up on Google Maps. Mm. Uh, whereas, you know, we operate in the area that we service, which means not only do we know the areas intimately and, you know, the particular mm. sort of pros and cons and the demographics, but we employ people from that same area. Mm -hmm. They all know that area really well. Um, and we actually have a small team of people. So you actually develop a relationship 
our customers develop a relationship with the coordinators when they're ringing in because they're either going to get Shelley or they're going to get Ash mm-hmm. or they're going to get Sue or they're going to get Jenny or they're going to get Tegan. And that's it. Mm. Like, so, you know, it's like talking to a friend and saying, you know, oh, look, you know, I've got this issue and I want to do, I want to, I want to go out on, on, you know, Thursday night. Um, and so can I have a little bit of extra time on that shift or, you know, and they know their carers and we know them. So it's, and, and it's the same for our, for our carers that provide the support. The, the coordinators know them all really mm. well as individuals. They're not just one of, you know, a thousand staff that could be anybody. Mm. Um, they actually directly uh, supervise those staff mm-hmm. where they, they've got, they're allocated to provide ongoing supervision and professional support. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they develop a relationship and they know who's, they don't just know who's got the skills. They know people's temperaments, their personalities, their hobbies, their interests, um, and so they can match. You know, if we get someone who is saying, look, it needs to be someone who's gentle, who's got an interest in crafts and yep. likes dogs, you know, we, I, I hear the girls in the office, you know, yeah. they'll have a bit of a banter and a bit of a chat and say, oh, who do you think might be suitable for that? Yeah. Oh, and straight away they'll go, you know, oh, what about this person? What about that person? What about mm. this person? And then they'll ring and have a bit of a chat with the carer to say, this is what's required, you know, are, are you up for that? Mm-hmm. So we really have a matching process. So by the time someone actually arrives at the door, they've not only gone through this rigorous screening process, they've then gone through a rigorous matching process mm-hmm. to make sure that um, there's a really good chance. There's not a guarantee, but there's a really good chance that they're the right person for the job. Well, you sound very confident about your business model and yes. the services that you're providing, and that's why you're here, and mm-hmm. that's why we're working with you, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but... The Royal Commission is coming, and if the Royal Commission does its job, it's going to apply a blowtorch to a couple of operators. Um, obviously, you're not fearful about that process. No, not in the slightest. Not in the slightest. You know, um, I think one of the reasons for that too is because um, we have a benefit, uh, I suppose, that perhaps some other aged care providers don't have. Because we work across the disability sector, um, the disability sector, I sort of touched on this a little bit last mm. week, Paula. Mm-hmm. The disability sector has a completely different approach to quality uh, compared to the aged care sector. In fact, it's it's a bit astonishing how different it is. Mm. The disability sector is driven all by all by human rights. That's what their standards mm. are based on: is human rights. So they're really big on. They actually are assessing: Do you give your clients choice? Do you give your clients? Um, agency. So do they have control over what goes on? Mm-hmm. Do you have systems of working out what it is they actually want? You know, so in other words, it's not, mm-hmm. this is what we've got, take it or leave it. It's what are you after? What's it, you know, what makes the difference for yeah, you? Giving them a voice yeah. so they're heard. Yeah. Mm. So because that's embedded into our service provision, that just flows across to how we provide the support for our aged care clients. And so it should be. Um, I know the other thing we were talking about just just, just before the, se- the session today, Paula, uh, was there are a couple of really obvious things too that the aged care sector could pick up, you know, tomorrow. You know, if the minister's serious, they don't need to wait for the Royal Commission to, to get its findings because we all know how long that takes. That could be six months. That could be 12 months. Yes. Um, you know, look at the Banking Royal Commission. That's been mm-hmm. lumbering along. It's been very meaningful, but it's mm. taking an awfully long time. Um, some of the really low-hanging fruit, 
in disability services, all of our, so all of our staff, including all of our staff that work with our aged care clients, have to be part of what they call a disability worker exclusion scheme. And this raises the bar way above um, police checks, which is the minimum standard for aged care workers. So the issue, I'll just explain that for a minute. The issue with a, with a, a, uh, a police check is the legislation says they only have to be updated every three years. So essentially, if, if a worker chooses to uh, commit a crime mm. and uh, because they are a criminal, yes. they then choose to not disclose it to you as the employer, uh, the reality is you are only going to find out about that potentially three years down the track when you That's run their next report. Yeah. Um, so they might have been done for serious fraud, mm. um, which has a direct relationship to our vulnerable clients that they're working yes. with who are often, yes. you know, uh, very easy to talk into, you know, giving people their PIN number yeah. and because <gasps> they can't see what they're doing at the ATM and, um, you know, all sorts of things. Yes. You know, can you read my correspondence? You know, mm. here's my banking statement. Can yes. you? <laughs> I've just got a new card. You can imagine it. I've just yeah. got a new card, replacement card from the mm. bank. Um, mm. I can't follow the instructions. Mm. Can you help Scratch me activate the, the card? You know, so there's all sorts of opportunities. Yeah. Now, with with the disability worker scheme, uh, what it does is when you employ somebody, uh, it actually provides another level of checking around whether not just has this person ever even committed a crime, but have they ever even been accused of a crime mm. or been investigated by a previous employer yes. for, a, for a potential, um, you know, not even a crime, just a, a, a serious misconduct. Mm -hmm. uh, now, this scheme, it, 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 what it's designed to do is it's designed to capture those people that do the wrong thing, and you hear about this in the industry quite a bit, where they do the wrong thing and they... Eventually, their employer finds out about it. A complaint's made. The employer starts investigating, and then, lo and behold, mm. they resign as soon as they see the writing on the wall. Yep. So they're not dismissed. Yes, and they literally get in their car, drive down the road to the next employer, similar employer, turn up on their doorstep, and say, "I've still got a perfectly clean record. I've still got a perfectly clean uh, uh, police check. Mm -hmm. Put me on your books." Wouldn't that employer phone their previous employer, though, for a reference? They should. It's yeah. called due diligence. Yes, exactly. However, you're yeah. still at the mercy of what you get told yes. by the other employer, yeah, and there are constraints. If, if a complaint hasn't been investigated and proven, the previous employer may get legal advice to yes. say, you can't disclose that information. Mm. Mm -hmm. So the beauty of the worker exclusion scheme is it's a national, it's a, sorry, it's a statewide database mm -hmm. at the moment. It's going to go national in the next 12 months. Um, so and, this is already underway. And, and, and you subscribe to it. Yes. Um, Warren, it's, it's fantastic uh, to catch up with you. Um, and, and also as part of this segment, I know that you're very keen on meeting some of our listeners. So perhaps we should mm. put the call out there. And I think what we'll do is we'll also organise a campaign with you, if we may, Warren, in mm. which we will get you in a sponsorship announcement. You probably hear it from time to time across the radio station, encouraging people to get involved. If it's a call to action, yes. we need to hear about it. We need to support people like you that are putting back into the sector because I think uh, we need to have a very healthy place for those that we love at this particular time Absolutely. of their life. Definitely. Yeah. Brendan, we, we would love to hear from people who've got any concerns about the aged care sector broadly, but in particular home care, mm -hmm. uh, people that are looking for advice, 
Um, really people, happy to help. And people who have had good experiences too. That would be nice yeah. as well. We like yeah. to hear about the things that are going well yes. so that we can promote that as well because yeah. that's really what we want to encourage. We yeah. want to encourage the... The good behaviour, yeah. not the not the poor behaviour. Exactly. We're all about that here at RPPFM. Warren Haynes, thank you very much indeed from Aftercare. This is the Age Stage on RPPFM. We will be back with more right after this break. So this is RPPFM, and you're listening to the Age Stage. I'm Paula Dunn, and with me as co-host today is Brendan Telfarm. So the Prime Minister Scott Morrison's decision to call for a royal commission into the aged care sector has been big news. Brendan, in the last couple of weeks. It certainly has. So today a different perspective is going to be put forward on that decision with uh, our next guest, Leanne Bowes, President of the Australian College of Nurse Practitioners. So welcome, Leanne. Thanks for talking to me today. Thank you for talking to us. It's really interesting to hear your perspective on the Royal Commission. So what what are your thoughts? Uh, Look, I think... um From our perspective, nurse practitioners are very engaged with the health service in Australia Um, and we certainly do have an opinion on this. Um, We actually believe that we do know what the problems are in aged care in Australia and um, we also are a group that can significantly contribute to the improvements that are needed. Um, And I know there's some views that um, a Royal Commission probably not required because we do have the answers. And I, I've heard those views um, from a, a few different groups. And do you, uh, however, do you agree with that? Well, to some extent I do because we do have the answers. Yeah. There's been a lot of, um, a lot of um, highly qualified and, uh, people that have, that have looked into what's happening and have provided some very high-quality data to support the changes that are needed. There's been a lot of research in this area and a lot of people putting a lot of time and effort into this, and we do have a lot of the answers. But I I guess um, from that point of view, um, this is what it takes to actually get action, and we desperately need action, and we we need it very, very soon. And I know a Royal Commission takes time, Mm. It takes a lot of money, but is this what we need to actually get action on this? Um, maybe it is, um, but I think the situation is far more critical and we need faster action. So, Leanne, why do you think that if your group, um, you're the college, has the answers, why do you think that we need the Royal Commission to and, and to spend that sort of money and take that sort of time when... You know, the nursing uh, college, from what you say, has the answers. So it's not, it's not, I'm not saying our college has the answers. I'm saying that our, our professional community have the answers. Yep. So it's not just the College of Nurse Practitioners, but we have, you know, um, many, many professional groups in the nursing realm and also in the health sector as well. Yeah. And we have a, a lot of um, academics and researchers in Australia that, that have contributed to this, this um, pool of research. So it's not just us. And, but, um, and, yeah. and have you not got together as a collective to put your case forward so that, you know, so that we don't have to have this Royal Commission and that somebody may listen to what you've got to say? Being professionals been a lot in of industry? Yeah, well, there has been a lot of communication. Um, unfortunately, that hasn't resulted in any action and mm. um, it's not always as simple as getting us together. Unfortunately, 
Given that uh, you think that you have some answers, or collectively you might have, what about the scope and uh, the guidelines for the Royal Commission? Are you shaping that with the Minister at this stage? Do you have any input there? No, we don't. Having seen, obviously, some of the media associated with um, the Royal Commission and the whole aged care sector in recent weeks... Does it gall you as a college to see some of the practices at work and some of the levels of care that's been evident to the general public? Absolutely. So um, I think it would it would disturb anybody from health professional to member of the public um, what we're seeing and um, health professionals and nurses in particular. Um, you know, we have been exposed to this ourselves as workers in the industry as well. Um, I mean, personally, I've, I've had a number of experiences myself um, with family members in aged care too. So wow. for, for us, it, it touches us as professionals and it touches us as, as people as well. Mm. And I think that what we're seeing is touching everybody in some way. And um, yeah, it's actually quite an emotional thing for many, many people. It is, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it's actually... It's, yeah. It brought about a lot for me as well with regard to um, one particular family member who was who was in aged care, in private aged care, and also, you know, um, experiences for me as a junior nurse, as a, as a registered nurse before I became a nurse practitioner. I did work in aged care myself, and I think you'll find nurse practitioners are, um, have worked for a very long time to, to get to their nurse practitioner position, um, they've got a lot of experience. It's often very, very broad across the industry. So you'll find even a nurse practitioner like me that's, that's working in general practice has some experience in aged care and, and can relate to a lot of the information that's being put out and can relate very much into this industry regardless of where we work. Mm-hmm. Leanne, it's, it's very it's very interesting that you say that, and we have such high regard. You know, the general public has such high regard for your college and for your 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 group, your professional group. But how has it got to this stage that you, as a collective of nurses, have basically been ignored or sidelined in this whole process of care? That you here are obviously very emotional when you discuss. And think about what you've seen in the media over the last few weeks. How's it how's it got to this stage? Mm. I I would possibly have a few ideas about that, but I'd probably not be very popular. But I mean, a lot of this comes down to the fact that there's this privatisation occurring. We don't actually know what's going on. There is a fear of, of reporting concerns, and also too, we've got a culture to speak quite plainly where concerns might be raised or complaints might be put in and they don't seem, they're not seen to be followed up or actioned. Um, if you as a nurse, especially a junior nurse, makes a complaint and that, that's not followed through, um, you feel very, um, you 
know, exposed and vulnerable that you've actually stepped up and done that and there's been no result. Mm. Um, and it's a difficult position to be in. You know, nurses are, are very strong advocates for patients, but you've also got to understand that many of the workers in this industry are not nurses. I think so that's... So nurses are the minority. Yeah, I think that seems to be one of the major issues is the lack of training um, and the professionalism. I mean, you, you know, you've got people who have had six weeks training dealing with dementia patients who have a neurological disorder. Uh, what experience would, you know, in That's six right. weeks could they possibly have to be able to deal with a mental disorder like dementia? And to go along with that three or four chronic diseases as well. Exactly. And that, that's the situation. These are not... These are not just older people. They are very complex people who've lived full, full lives yes. and have more than one medical complaint going on. Mm. Um, they need care on a number of levels. Mm. Um, and we must remember too that um, nursing is trying very, very hard to have a voice in this, nurses as a whole. But, you know, we, we are a minority in the industry, which which is a key part of the issue here. Goodness, man. Um, and you can have one nurse responsible for 70 or even 100 people. Oh, the, the, the issue is, Leanne, I mean, that's just an appalling ratio, but the issue is that you nurses are expensive. And if I'm a businessman uh, trying to provide some sort of care, I'm going to be looking at my bottom line. Bottom line is I need to go where I'm going to improve my margins. That's exactly right, and that's, that's the issue. Um, you know, we have for-profit providers and mm. that's exactly what they are. They're for-profit. So they look at ways to cut costs, increase income. We all look at in business increasing income and cutting expenses. But the biggest expense is quality of care yeah. and life. And, and, life. and that's yeah. not an expense we can tolerate. No, it's not. I a... mean, we, yeah, this industry needs review. So are you suggesting some sort of nationalised health care system here? Well, we need to look at whether it's possible for a for-profit company to actually make a profit and provide quality care. Is that possible? Is yeah, that's there a, a good point. It, yeah, that, that is a really good point. You would think it, it would be profitable considering the amounts of monies that are uh, put forward in order for a loved one to be cared for in one of those um, places. So you you and and we're hearing you know figures of feeding um, you know um, residents at six dollars a day. You know that yeah. sort of thing. So yeah. someone's making an awful lot of money. You That's would assume. Right. So, you know what's coming in and what's going, being yes. spent yeah. and, and what's the remainder. That's right. So, Where so, is that going? So, so, Leanne, there's a number of models, isn't there, sort of a fully nationalised healthcare system, a la, I'd say, a Scandinavian model. Is there something between that and maybe a fully privatised US system where basically some guarantees are instilled and written in law that there must be improved nursing ratios to patients and so on? And if people can make a few dollars out of that, then, then so be it. But if you can't, then get out of the system. If you mm. can't provide the level of care. What, 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 are, what are you and the college thinking here? Well, that's an enormous question. Um, <laughs> that's, that's what we're here yeah. for, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know. Look, there yeah. may well be something in between. Um, uh, and, and at the end of the day, too, um, you know, we need to look at costs 
to the community as well as far as dollars. At the end of the day, it does take money. Um, so, you know, what degree does the government contribute? What degree does the private sector contribute? And if the private sector can't make money out of this, then, then they won't want to be there anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so who has the responsibility here and how is that responsibility um, divided up so that all of the stakeholders can benefit? But most of all, I think we have to put the patients first. Absolutely. Otherwise... And the residents first. Yes. The person first. And exactly. if we can put the person first and then work out the business model around it. Mm. Um, I don't know what that would look like, um, but I think that's where we need to start. So, Leanne, how are you and the Australian College of Nurse Practitioners getting organised to address and get involved in this Royal Commission? Are you strategising at the moment? Do you have a, a workflow of some sort? Do you have advocates that would be representing you guys? How does it all work? Yeah, well, we do have um, some a very experienced people, uh, nurse practitioners in aged care, um, and we will obviously call on them at times where we are asked to contribute, we will be actively um, ensuring that we do have a voice and also working with other professional nursing organisations um, to um, assist us to have a voice as well because often if we are collective um, and we work together, uh, then we we may actually have a higher chance of, of being heard and we do work very very well mm-hmm. um, so these meetings will be occurring and we will be um, strategizing together that would be the aim good can I just ask you Leanne as part of the uh, training of a nurse um, is it required that they do some sort of um, training in aged care or is that you know yeah. is that a choice um, so it, it has varied over the years with if we're talking about the degree, the registered nurse degree, it's yep. varied over the years, whether you actually do clinical experience in aged care. But mm-hmm. um, from what I understand, all of the degrees, you will get some um, actual hands-on experience in aged care. And it is covered in the uh, theoretical units as well. Um, however, obviously, it's not covered to a specialist level. Yes. Um, yeah. There is specialist training available um, and then once you have your degree you um, you can develop into a nurse practitioner as well which takes quite a few years and additional um, tertiary qualifications up to the master's level mm. and um, you know there is actually opportunity for nurse practitioners to make significant impacts in uh, the aged care industry uh, and, as well. And, and, and just listen to that answer, Leanne, and I think it basically summarises the whole thing, doesn't it? I mean, just listen to the skills and the amount of study uh, and effort that would go into preparing a nurse mm. to be able to give the level of care that we probably, the average citizen, would want uh, our family members to have if they went into such a facility. And, and contrast that now with, with what, as Paula yeah. says, some people are only with six weeks before they go in and start looking after our loved ones. I mean, the contrast is just... Yeah. Well, it's just incredible, isn't it? Mm. You can have a diploma or a degree qualified nurse with some experience in aged care that can deliver outstanding care yes. to our residents. Your nurse practitioners um, can add an additional layer where we can really um, 
picking up deterioration in aged care residents and responding to that quickly, um, you know, avoiding the need for um, ambulance transfers and things like that by, you know, really detecting problems early, not allowing residents to become terribly unwell and then, you know, we, we're trying to, to repair things or, mm. or assist them to recover, but really in that preventative space as well, because and, and, unfortunately a lot of them become unwell. And, and, of course, in the preventive area as well, you're saving lots of money in the long term because you're not treating people for all sorts of ailments and con- mm. concerns later on. You're, you're, you're preventing that sort of thing. I think Paula's had a very interesting idea on this program in the past as well. She was suggesting that perhaps as part of nursing and nurse training that there'd be an obligatory 6- to 12-month period in which people are rostered into aged care mm-hmm. to get that sort of experience. It would take a lot of pressure off the sector as well and would guarantee numbers of people with skills in the sector. That would be very, very difficult to enforce, I would imagine. Um, But we do do similar programs with medical um, trainees where they're required to rotate through different areas. Um, Why would it be so difficult, Leanne? Well, it's hard when people have graduated a course and they're fully qualified to require them to work in a particular area. But what about as part of their undergraduate course? Yeah, part of their qualification. Part of their undergraduate course. Yeah, look, I think there is a, a... a requirement for them to work a certain amount of time, but they're still undergraduate students. Leanne, we're, we're running out of time very very okay. quickly, I'm afraid, and you've got another appointment we know that you've got to get away to. Just very quickly then, in the in this care sector, if between now and the deliberation of the uh, Royal Commission we have to make a decision about our loved ones, do we ask these care providers about their ratios as we make a decision about the suitability of a, of a, of a place to, where we put them? I think we do. I think we need to ask about the ratio of carers to residents and also the ratio of nurse to resident, they are two different things. Mm, yes, you're absolutely right. We have right. to yep. specifically ask how many people are here to look after these residents at any given time and how many of them are nurses. So we don't just focus on the number of carers or nurses, we focus on the skill mix, I think. Yeah, that is crucial. That's been a, a real eye-opener to me because, because my father was in, in care and I, I didn't ask that question. And yep. And I just really regret that, yeah. Leanne Bowes, President of the Australian College of Nurse Practitioners, thank you very much indeed for joining us today on the Age Stage and uh, perhaps we might keep your number, Leanne, and get you to contribute again to the program at some stage in the future if you'd be uh, agreeable. Absolutely, not a problem. Thank Thank you so much, Leanne. Thank you. Okay, all right. Bye now. So this is RPPFM and you're listening to The Age Stage. I'm Paula Dunn and with me as co-host today is Brendan Telfer. I'm very privileged, Brendan. Well, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> well, no, I love The Age Stage and just some of the, the topics and the issues, particularly with the Royal Commission going on at the moment mm. and uh, it's a very interesting field. And we've just had Dementia Month as well. And we I, have. I'm looking forward to talking to our next guest. Yes, yes. So our next guest is Giselle Ciano, who is part uh, as part of Seniors Week will be presenting a seminar in Geelong on the importance of food and uh, for brain health and, and prevention of dementia. So welcome, Giselle. Hi, thanks for having me. So that's a really interesting topic and we just can't wait to talk to you about this. So we'll start with how important nutrition is for seniors. Well, it is extremely important. I'm sure we all are quite aware of um, how important nutrition is to our bodies. Mm. And in particular, this session that we're running on the 18th of October 
um, inching along is a very informative session that's going to touch on a wide range of topics, particularly on um, food for brain health and the prevention of dementia and also nutrition options that are available for seniors and any tips on um, what to eat to fuel vitality and preserve independence. And a perfect example of why it's so important is your brain, um, which uses 20% or more of your body's total energy supply, needs to function with a constant access of um, blood sugar. So your brain needs to be nourished all the time to keep its job um, going and protect the brain cells from any damage. Um, so it's so important to make sure you eat a, a um, wide range of colourful foods. The colourful foods is often what has the antioxidants and all the good stuff mm-hmm. um, that can help our brain. So, so Giselle, well. when you say colourful foods, you mean like carrots and beetroot and greens? Yes, and, yeah? that's right. Okay. Lots of greens, orange, um, red, lots of fruit. They're yep. fantastic. Um, and protein is actually another thing that's yes. extremely important as we age as well. Um, it, it's often very easy to think that we need to cut down. As we get older, we need to eat less. Mm-hmm. When you know, metabolism slows down, but keeping up that protein is very important for things. So would you um, suggest but, like protein shakes and things like that? Could could we have those? Absolutely. So um, those protein shakes are available. Um, I guess the thing with um, food is that it's, you can turn it into a social occasion and mm. often the meal preparation, especially for seniors, is quite enjoyable. Um, you can turn that into a fun experience, which I guess supplements can't really offer that. But mm. by all means, definitely um, supplements can help mm-hmm. for sure. I think as well, the visual aspect of food is very important. It is, yes. Too. So when we prepare our food, it will stimulate your appetite if it looks great mm. and it is nicely presented and prepared. So that's one thing to consider as well for anyone who's caring for a senior um, and preparing meals is also the presentation is quite important too to bring on that appetite. Well, you're going to be presenting an information session on the 18th across the other side of the bay, across the other side of Port Phillip Bay at the Vines, uh, Vines Road Community Centre. Um, the subject is nutrition for seniors. Basically, Giselle, in, in a few words, what will you be telling everybody there at the, at the session? So we'll, we'll have um, a fantastic session that day and we actually are very lucky to have a guest speaker from Dementia Australia um, Christine McGrath, who will talk about the importance of food on the brain, on brain health and prevention of dementia. And I'll also be covering um, some topics on nutrition for seniors. And we've touched on it a little bit today, but what can affect your appetite? Um, what types of things may change, change um, your appetite for food? And what are some tips and tricks that we just mentioned just before on how to combat that? Um, so, in a nutshell, that's what we'll be discussing on the 18th of October. Okay. Well, Giselle, Siano, thank you very much indeed for talking to us today on the Age Stage, and I hope uh, that the session with everybody goes very, very well. Thank you, Giselle. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you so much for having me. Thank you. You're welcome. Good on, Giselle. This is the Age Stage, and when we come back, we'll be having a think about the dangers 
of mobility scooters. Mm, yes. Paula, the, like this, the deaths that have occurred, this, uh, 132 deaths in, in 17 the past 17 years. years. I mean, that's astounding. And just very quickly, if you do want to go across and have a look and talk to uh, Giselle and the crew, they're going to be at uh, the Vines Road Community Centre, Vines Road in Hamlin Heights on Thursday the 18th between 11am and 12pm. And the subject of the day, nutrition for seniors, an information session. Sounds very, very yeah. interesting. Well, we'll, take, we'll, we'll take a break. We'll be right back soon. This is the age stage of RPPFM. Uh, can you believe, Steve, that in the past 17 years there have been 132 deaths linked to mobility scooters? Really? And motorised no, wheelchairs? Really? I had no idea Absolutely. Of that. Well, that's a huge figure. So that's a stark conclusion reached by researchers at Monash University. And mm. to tell us more about that, um, I'd like to introduce Professor Joan Ozane-Smith of the Department of Forensic Medicine on the line to tell us more. Welcome, Professor. Thank you. So those are incredible figures, um, about the uh, the 132 deaths, what insight can you give us into that? Well, those those deaths are almost all to riders of motorised scooters. Wow. They include three deaths of pedestrians who were um, impacted by by scooters. But mm-hmm. the main um, risk group are the riders, and in addition to the deaths, about 350. Scooter riders are admitted to hospital each year as a result of injuries. Goodness me. And so what oversights oversights are there for users of those machines? Well, very few at this stage. Uh, There's no uniform requirement for any assessment of... And it's mostly older people Mm. who use the scooters. Um, There's no uniform requirement for assessment... um, of people before they ride scooters and there's no uniform requirement for training of any sort to to ride scooters. Mm. Wow. um, And another problem is that um, multiple jurisdictions are responsible for um, motorised scooters so that the roads authorities have some responsibility the Therapeutic Goods Administration is responsible for any scooters that are prescribed by the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And the remainder are the responsibility of the, the ACCC. Yep. I know uh, down here in Mornington, there's a, a major road called Mornington Tyab Road. And I was coming down there one day and the traffic was banked up. And right as we're g- going up the hill, I could see this older gentleman on a mobility scooter with the flag mm. crawling up the hill, you mm. know, but it's a, was a, it's a major road. I mean, it, I, yes. anything could have happened to him, you know. Yes. So, yes. so yes. what you're saying is there's no legislation that says you can't drive a mobility scooter on a road, on a major road? They're allowed on the road if there's no footpath. Yes, well, that's, that was the case. If there's a footpath... Um, I believe they're required to use that. Mm. Mm. But sometimes when you see them going down the footpath, they're going so fast, you just about want to jump out of the way. <laughs> you know, they're on a roll, yeah. so to speak. And because of the size of this problem, there has been a Senate inquiry that's just reported in the last few days. Ah. And um, its its major recommendation is that there should be a framework, a regulatory framework established that's consistent 
extend across Australia for all states and territories, and, and that seems very sensible. Yes, absolutely. So do you think the performance of some of these machines appears too much for the operators? Oh, I, I think that's probably the case. That they're very heavy, and um, as I said, it's, it's the frail elderly who mm. um, often come to grief, and um, and motorised scooters tip quite readily because the centre of gravity is quite high. Yes. By the mm. time there's somebody sitting on top of them. Mm. Goodness. And me. Um, the other problem with older people is that um, as we get older, our, our reflexes are not so good. And if we fall, we tend not to be able to put our arms out to protect ourselves. So um, the, the people who die as riders of scooters, usually um, it's from head injuries. Mm. And so there's a question of whether helmets would be protective mm. um, for riders as well. And what about licensing and, and competency testing? Do you think that that is a possible solution? Yes, it, it would be an administrative nightmare. Yes. Um, <laughs> in Queensland, motorised scooters are required to be registered and when they're registered, that also um, they're also um, given third-party insurance, mm. um, which gives some sort of... Um, measure of um, protection, I guess. Yes, yes. Although I'm guessing because the majority of the people that are using this equipment are elderly people, uh, we want to keep it relatively cheap too. We don't want to yeah, start right. slugging them for expensive licences mm-hmm. and insurance exactly. and training. So yes. we've got to do this exactly. in a reasonable way, yeah. So uh, therefore uh, there may be some sort of subsidy or something mm. like that. Yes, mm. um, you know, really primary importance to older people. And so uh, I'm not suggesting for a moment that that should be restricted. No. But, um, but we also need to um, make the use of motorised mobility scooters safe. I think the, um, that it is timely that, um, that the Senate inquiry has made this recommendation for some sort of regulatory framework. So what do you think the next step is there then, Professor? Well, I'm not exactly sure what happens to a Senate inquiry once it's tabled in um, Parliament. I guess some decision has to be made about the recommendation actually implementing them. Mm, Yes, yeah, I agree. So I'd like to thank Professor Jo Ozane-Smith of the Department of Forensic Medicine um, on the program today. It was a wonderful interview with her. Indeed, extraordinary statistics there. And uh, just looking at the clock as well, it means that uh, I think we're going to have to move along pretty quickly. But before I do, um, don't forget everyone that this is an important week coming up for older Australians because we're celebrating right across the peninsula of course, um, the Victorian Seniors Festival. And lots happening down here as well. Camp Manyang, Greek uh, lunches, Hastings U3A, Mm -hmm. Five Hole, uh, come and try golf as well. They're garden croquet parties. Um, If you want to know more what you've got to do um, is get in touch with the local shire officers, library or leisure centres. And if you are into the Victorian Seniors Festival, which kicks off this weekend, do get in touch with the shire. They'll be able to steer you in the right direction. Yes. And you're on RPPFM and you've been listening to The Age Stage, made possible by Aftercare Australasia. And we'd like to thank our guests today, Leanne Boss, uh, Giselle Ciano 
and Professor Joan Ozan Smith. Thank you, Brendan. Well, thank you very much indeed. Great to be back in the hot seat with you, Paula. Thank you very much indeed for listening to us here at RPPFM. The H Date, of course, is brought to you by Aftercare Australasia. And uh, we'll see you next week, Paula. We'll see you next week.